The Rainmaker Multiplier On Demand Series is brought to you by Clarity to Prosperity, a financial training, coaching, and IP development organization led by financial advisors, coaches, and business leaders committed to taking a holistic approach to advising. To learn more about our organization and upcoming training opportunities for financial professionals, visit ClarityToProsperity.com. Hey there, Jason Smith here. My conversation with Philip Palaveep went so well that we had to break it up into two episodes. So part two is coming up next. Please enjoy. I think you'll get some great insights from it. I mean, to be honest, business development is sometimes like a game of clue and and it's fun uh, and it's 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 rewarding. I I work with a lot of young advisors and they're worried about it and they're scared of it. And and here is kind of the most important part. We're describing business development as this natural process that tends to happen as a result of just having a good practice. Notice that when you have a good practice, it's relatively easy. You have 200 clients that you work with. Well, that's maybe a little bit too many for one advisor, but let's say you have 120 clients. Well, they're generating referrals. The phone is ringing. You have a good reputation in the community. People know you. People think you're a good person to work with. You get some phone calls from people that are centers of influence or just by virtue of your reputation. You've been doing this for 20, 30 years, and it's relatively easy to grow. So, hey, hey, except for when you've been doing it for not 20, 30 years, but you've been doing it for seven, eight years, it's really tough because you don't have 120 clients, because you don't have a reputation, because no one's calling you yet. And really, this is kind of the most important part. They say that sports and comedy, every timing is everything. And the same is true for business development. When you have a reputation, it's relatively easy. When you don't, it's impossibly hard. So what gives? How do you create a reputation? This is why we believe in ensemble practices, because this is when you don't have a reputation personally, you rely on the reputation of your firm. I started my career in Moss Adams, which is a big accounting and consulting firm has at least used to have a very big reputation and big name in this industry. So originally, most of my clients came to work not with Philip. They came to work with Moss Adams. And by the way, Philip was representing Moss Adams. The only reason they work with me is because I was representing Moss Adams in that relationship. Later on in my career, today, most people come to me to work with Philip. And now I'm trying to convince them to also work with the ensemble practice. Notice the opposite is true. Early on in your career, you borrow the reputation of your firm to build new relationships. In the second chapter of your career, you do the opposite. You lend your personal reputation to the business so that the business can help your younger colleagues grow their, their abilities in their practice. So it's a little bit like a, the, yeah. the firm and the professional need each other. You need the firm to get your career started. And when you start your career and become successful, use that career to build the firm. And, you know, Philip, that aligns perfectly, I think, with a little bit of what I was talking about earlier is when you really master business development and you become yeah. a rainmaker, which really, you know, kind of unlocks the opportunity for practicing partner, at least in our firm. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, dead on, right? Like it's you're able to feed the firm where before the firm was feeding you. Yeah. And, you know, the term rainmaker implies someone who only develops new relationships and actually doesn't work with clients. I think in our industry, that's a little more difficult. Clients kind of get concerned about this sort of a bait and switch type of thing where 
they meet one person, they really like Jason, but then Jason right disappears and they work with Philip and they're everybody's disappointed when they meet Philip. So, and that's kind of part of the problem. But the, the point is like, you don't have to be a specialist in just new business, but if you're successful working with clients, you're going to create opportunity. And that should yeah. benefit you, but you should also benefit your firm. It will, there will come a time in your career when you're creating more opportunity than you can actually pursue. When you do that, pass it on to your younger colleagues. Give those leads to your younger colleagues. Introduce those prospective clients to your younger colleagues. Train, develop, mentor your younger colleagues to capture that opportunity. Build a firm. That's the idea is don't waste it. Build a firm. No doubt. And, and you know what we've experienced, Philip, is kind of like two different scenarios. We have an advisor that we've had, right, that has become so good at business development that now that's all they do, right? They just develop business, feed the firm. They're no longer taking people through the bucket plan, the financial planning process any longer. But we have another gentleman who is just as good at business development but he's actually upped his game and only works with bigger and bigger clients and keeps feeding all the smaller opportunities down to all the other advisors of the firm. And it's, you know, it's two different paths and they actually both work. But the one thing I have noticed is that the one that is still a practicing partner, the, the, the one that's still working with clients, taking them through the process, he's able to attain unsolicited referrals, let's call it, because yeah. of the real, like the current event, real life practicing knowledge that he's able to share, like almost indirectly as he's having conversations with centers of influence and clients versus the other that's a business development officer. He knows enough and he's got unbelievable people skills, but there, I think there's a level of opportunity that you know, maybe the one that no longer is practicing is not getting that the one that still is practicing is, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it from a firm perspective, it, it you have more strategies available to you than if you just look at it from individual perspective. When you look at it one advisor at a time, how that advisor is going to develop new business, then it becomes very sort of circumstantial based on their talents, abilities, and experience. And it becomes more difficult because the resources and time of one person are very restricted. When you look at, at an entire organization, then you can start seeing some specialization. You can see some opportunities. You can leverage the experience and talents of some of your people that are really good at something. And perhaps you can utilize everyone's best skill uh, at, at a different position. Almost like in a soccer team, like if you look at a soccer team, you have 11 players. You know, one of them is going to spend most of their time at your goal. They're never going to score. That's your goalie. But they're going to protect you from losing. And that's kind of like your chief operating officer. They're going to protect you from having trouble. But they're going to, they're probably not going to bring clients to the firm. And that's just fine. By the way, you don't want your goalie in front of the other goal. That's that's very dangerous and a bad idea. You only do that in very desperate situations in hockey and soccer. Then you have your forwards and your forwards are going to score a lot. That's their job. That's what they're, they're paid to do. But they're not the only ones scoring in soccer. And this is very important to remember. In modern soccer, the defenders score a lot. They're expected to score a lot. They're expected to play forward as well. The midfields are expected to play forward and score a lot. It's kind of debatable. Is Messi a midfielder? Is he here forward? We can have a long conversation about that, but he certainly scores a lot. So 
So notice every advisor in your firm should be scoring. Every advisor in your firm should be bringing new clients. But there are some people from an organizational perspective that can specialize in that. That's your forwards. And there are some people who are sort of exempt from that because they're defending your goal. That's your defense and your goalie. But you know, notice even deep defense actually should score some. They should still play forward. So everyone who's working with clients should be responsible for finding opportunities. I am not fine with the idea that you could be working with 150 clients and you can't bring a client to the firm. Absolutely. You know, many relationships, you should see a referral. If you're not seeing a referral, you're not doing your job well. Really, it's hard to accept that. But if you're not seeing enough referrals, something's not right with your client service. Right. No, I, I agree with that. I think that what we've experienced, you know, is there are some service advisors that are, they're very good at their job and they absolutely get referrals. So therefore they're doing a good job, proofs in the pudding. But they're not one to go to that lead advisor level, right? In the certain hunting kind of capabilities that almost get come out at that lead advisor. Hopefully they're coming out before that, but they really shine at lead advisor or even a business development officer. So I think like what you're talking about it, what resonates with me is our firm has grown to a size where somebody who is really good at business development officer, and that's what they're passionate about, can feed service advisors that still have bandwidth, but don't kind of have the hunting capability to become a lead advisor. And so you can kind of play, and, and we have a life specialist now that we've added because we tried to have every financial advisor also incorporate life insurance into their practice. But in reality, you, you, we just couldn't do it. We couldn't get them all to do a good job in that area. So we start bringing in a life specialist. So I, I think it's as you grow, right? Well, I, you know, again, once you start growing past a certain size and you have a number of people, you can start specializing in a variety of ways. And then you start thinking in terms of what is our strategy as a firm rather than individually of bringing clients to the firm? You can certainly bring a client to the firm, not even through business developments, just through marketing. You know, a lot of, for example, a lot of uh, clients work with the financial advisors in Vanguard. There are a lot of financial advisors in Vanguard. They never run around looking for clients. They never network. They never sit on nonprofit boards. They never create podcasts or publish articles. Maybe they publish something. But they have a lot of clients because clients go to Vanguard and then Vanguard assigns them an advisor. So you can attract clients as a firm. You can attract clients as a brand. And then those clients can be distributed internally. You can attract clients as a famous person. I mean, there are certainly examples like that in our industry as well. Rick Edelman, through his personal reputation, has created literally thousands and thousands and thousands of financial advisory careers and client relationships. So you can market in a lot of different ways. You can business develop in a lot of different ways. But what I'm trying to say is that the foundation of business development should be your existing relationships. And everybody's in that business. We are known in the hunter-gathering business anymore. We used to be back in the life insurance brokerage industries. Today, we're all farmers. Today, we're all in the business of relationships. Most of all, we're in the business of relationships, but even far farmers have to plant. You, you, even if you have an orchard, you got to plant new trees. If you've ever been in the vineyard, my, my father owns a small vineyard. If you own a vineyard, you got to plant, plant new vines. You can't just be sitting on the same vines because some vines die. And you also need to grow the vineyard. And without growth, you become stagnant and everybody's in the growth business. 
in especially in modern advice, we don't have such a distinct dis distinct sort of a boundary between front stage, backstage, you know, front office, back office. To a certain degree, everybody is in the business of client relationships and everybody is connected strongly to the client. But that also means that everybody's in the business of growing the reputation of the firm and using those strong relationships to identify future clients. Again, you're not a doctor without patients. You cannot be an advisor without clients. There's a kind of a, almost a, a, a wave of thinking in our industry that there, this is an industry for technical experts. No, if you don't have patients, you're not a doctor. You're just a guy with a medical degree. You become a doctor when you start treating people. You become an advisor when you start working with clients, which means you got to go find clients. A doctor doesn't do sales. Clients come to you because they have a problem. The same is true for an advisor. People come to you because they need a solution. You don't have to run around forcing people to take care of their retirement or take care of their children's education or they take care of their loved ones or take care of their own financial goals. Ideally, they recognize they have an opportunity and a challenge they need some help with. And that's why we need new relationships. Essentially, it's the business of helping more people. No doubt. But I, I mean, in, really just in summary on that piece, and the last thing I'd love to hear from you about is making someone a practicing partner and anything you might want to share from there. But, you know, Philip, I think what I hear you say, you know, some of the key things is, you know, we're all farmers yeah. and we all have business development responsibilities as financial advisors. And a big part of that is just create, delivering a super high level of customer service and experience to those clients. So that way they have no choice but to talk about you and want to help you because what a great job that you did in the experience that you provided to them. And, and, and that's really like fundamentally that's it. Imagine you're, you're a chef and you, you're, you're amazing at creating these meals. Well, I mean, ideally, every time you create a meal, people can stop talking about, you know, how well you cook and they want to invite their friends over and bring their friends over. That's kind of what you're shooting for. And if you're cooking and nobody's talking about it, maybe you want to take a look at your recipes. Something's not going right. Again, I don't believe that you can be graded relationships without actually being able to grow the business. When you're graded relationships, people talk about you. And we can talk, we can easily have another podcast about what's the motivation behind referrals, why people talk about other people. But generally, we share. We love to share. We love to create connections. We are very social animals. And when we experience something great, we want to share it with others. And the opposite is true. When we experience something that, that sucks, to use the technical term, we also tell everybody it sucks because, hey, we want to protect our friends from a negative experience. It's also called emotional regulation. When we're upset about something, we want to tell other people because that helps us vent and sort of release that pressure. So we got to sort of remember that we are in the business of relationships and relationships go from there. Now, you mentioned practicing partners. So practicing partners are basically lead advisors who also have shares in the company. They become owners. This has changed quite a bit. This is one of the elements that have changed. Traditionally, when I was writing, for example, the G2 book, which was written 2015, 16 or something like that, the vast majority of lead advisors who are very good at their job, very good at their practice, could expect to become also owners in their firm, could expect to purchase some shares in their firm. The same was true for the people who are best at investments in the investment department, people who are best at operations in the operations department. 
throughout the firm, the best people at every profession within the firm, every job within the firm could expect to maybe someday acquire ownership in the firm. And we will call those that are lead advisors with ownership, we'll call them practicing partners. And of course, others will also have ownership too. The point being that what changed in the last five years particularly is a lot of firms are now part of some kind of a private equity finance national firm. And there are many excellent national firms that are purchasing advisory firms and doing all kinds of interesting things. They're creating synergies, they're integrating technology, they're streamlining marketing. There's a variety of business models throughout the industry. But many of those business models don't necessarily generate equity ownership. They generate other forms of compensation or other forms of sort of wealth creation. They use synthetic equity. They use variety of vehicles. But not every advisor in the future of the industry will become a practicing partner. Still, though, in the majority of firms out there, majority by numbers, by the way, the top 100 firms in the industry by now, something like, According to data, something like 30 to 40% of them are related to private equity. In other words, they have some private equity investment in them. But more realistically, if you really look at it, it's closer to 60, 70, maybe even 80%. Most of them have some private equity exposure. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them. So the top 100 are very consolidated. But if you look at sort of the mid-sized firms, those that are less than a billion, somewhere between half a billion to a billion, and most of them are still privately owned. In other words, that notion of becoming an owner is still out there. In the advisory career track, in my mind, usually that requires some business development. You do not have to be the best business developer in the firm, but there's got to be at least some track record of creating opportunity. Either that or somehow the firm itself has to have a very clear strategy of how it grows if the advisors themselves are not involved in growth. Because the danger is if you have a bunch of, if you have a great soccer team, but nobody can score, well, that's a problem. It's a little bit, I mean, the same in every sport. The same is true in football. The same is true in hockey. The same is true in basketball. If you're great on defense, but you can't score, I mean, good for you. You're also very boring to watch. And you're probably not going to win a lot of games. You need both. You need both. And if you're gonna if you're gonna grow, it's probably best that you ask every single advisor that works with clients to create at least some growth, and then it's easier. If we basically say that most of our advisors are not going to be responsible for growth, that that puts too much pressure on one or two or three people. And by the way, we become very vulnerable to those one or two three people. If only one or two people can create new opportunities, can be a business developer in the firm. Well, what happens if one of them leaves? then suddenly we can't grow. And by the way, that person probably has too much political power because they know that they're the only business developer. They can probably twist everybody's arm and get their way. And when business developers get their way too much in an organization, bad things happen. Those of us that are really good at business development, sometimes are not very good at actually patience, most of all, which makes us not particularly good at some of the leadership activities. So you kind of have to be careful. Organizations run by salespeople have a tendency to grow really fast and then disappear really fast. So you got to have a kind of a good balance of skills, good balance of personalities, good balance of motivations, and good balance of people knowing a lot of different things. But business development is one of those fundamental skills. It's almost like basketball. Like you want everyone to be able to put the, the, the ball in the basket. Everybody's got to be shooting at least a little bit because if they're not able to shoot, then we have problems on the team. Then that changes the dynamics on the floor. So at least a little bit of business development activity is necessary for each and every owner, at least in my mind.
Bill, how about the financial aspect of it? What are the couple few most common ways if you have a firm that has yeah. identified an individual that they would like to offer equity, but they're yeah. just kind of like, now what, right? I don't want to just give it to them. My valuation, I know what it is, so I don't want to gift them. What's the best way to, to you know, do that transaction or the couple few, you know, as we're kind of landing the plane here? Well, I would probably say most importantly, remember why this you want this person as a partner. Remember why this person is so important to you. Remember that retaining this person and making sure their motivation is right is extremely important. And if you remember that, that will maybe help you reconcile some of the difficult financial sort of metrics around it. Equity has become very expensive. And because it's very expensive, it has become very difficult for G2s, for the next generation of advisors to buy it. But you got to remember, if they, they're not buying your equity, they may end up working for somebody else. I think there's a proverb that says that a country that doesn't feed its army sooner or later feeds somebody else's army. And the same is true of a company that doesn't feed its next generation, a company that doesn't retain its next generation sooner or later is, is paying for somebody else's. So you you got to remember that these people are very important to you. And maybe you got to start structure a deal that reflects how important they are to you. In other words, it's not going to be the deal that has the highest price. And it's not going to be the deal that takes a lot of money to your bank. But it's going to be the deal that creates the future for your firm and make sure that the best people are on your team rather than somebody else's team competing with you. And I think for that reason, I will probably be looking to maybe do a more friendly deal with my internal G2s. And then perhaps you can still do some external deals. They're not incompatible. You can have external and internal ownership. But the internal ownership is absolutely necessary to retain and motivate the best people you have. And if you don't have that instrument, you can still get it done. You don't have to offer equity to your best people. But if you don't offer them equity, it's going to be a lot more expensive. So it's things like a discounted valuation and company holding the note and huh. amateurized over a number of years and taken out of pay and maybe have it coordinated with pay increase that starts in January. Any of those kind of things you can do to make it easy on the cash flow for those that want to buy in, but really attractive and something they're appreciative for. Yeah, just remember why you're doing it and do it in a way that doesn't punish your G2 for becoming your partners. You want them to be excited about being your partners, not be saying, oh my God, I got to be paying for this for the next 30 years. If they're holding their head, that's you're not doing it right. And, you know, at the end of the day, find the best people and focus on the best people. And it's easier to give them a good deal because you, you can see what they're going to do for your business. Picture that person contributing to your business. Picture everything they're going to do. And that makes it easier to perhaps use a lower multiple in that valuation. To be honest, that notion discount, but the discount sort of implies there's some kind of a real price or a true price. The true price is on a check, but the true price is on a check only once in your career, more or less. You can't really sell the same firm multiple times. People have tried, but generally speaking, you probably shouldn't. Now, that check tends to be a lot better if you have a real firm with a lot of good motivated people in it. So remember that the internal deals, especially if you're a founder, the internal deals are going to set up the future excellent external deal if that's where you're headed to. And in the absence of the internal deals, the external deal may not be there because the first thing that buyers look for is, do you have a G2? And if you don't have a G2, the valuations and the deal structures are very, very different than if you do. And you just kind of have to remember that. But I don't like the term discount. I mean, 
my books, for example, on the on the back of the book, what does it say? Something along the lines of $75 or something like that. But I've never, no one's ever sold the copy for $75. It has always sold for $49.95 at Amazon, reflecting a 40% discount. But really the price was set at $75 by my publisher because they wanted to sell it at Amazon for $49.95, looking like a 40% discount. So discounts are sort of this notion of something has a real value and then we discount it down. That's not true. I would probably say, look, you know, the price is what the price needs to be in order to integrate the next generation into the ownership of your business. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe it's a discount relative to what you think you may be able to sell the firm in, in the external market, yeah. but you will only be able to sell the firm at that price in the external market if you have the G2 internally. So you got to sort of put, put your ducks in a row. Do the internal deals first, and then the external deal may still be there and will be very attractive. But if you only chase the external deal, you may find that, you know, when you chase two birds at the same time, you may have nothing. That's great. Thank you so much, Philip. This was unbelievable. Uh, anytime I talk to you, I get great insight. I only wish I would have recorded our previous conversations, but I definitely want to encourage uh, the G2 program. I've had two team members go through it. We'll have many more into the future. And just real uh, quickly, Philip, it's basically future leaders of your organization or current leaders that have even more upside potential. Is that a, a good way to summarize who you'd want to have go through the uh, program? Yeah, whoever as a, as a founder or as a leader of an organization, as a CEO of an organization, whoever your best future partners are, that's who we want to work with. Whoever is leading, managing people, whoever is sitting in your executive committee or other important committees, whoever is a young person that's saying, I want to be a contributor to the future of this firm and I want to lead others, that's who we want to work with. And we have people from very small firms who are the sometimes even the second employee of the firm. And we have people from literally the largest firm in the industry. And we enjoy working with all of them because fundamentally, and this is one of the most enjoyable things about our industry, fundamentally, it's all about how we connect with clients and how we connect with each other as colleagues, as partners, as leaders of an organization. All right. Thank you, Philip. The Rainmaker Multiplier On Demand series is brought to you by Clarity to Prosperity, a financial training, coaching, and IP development organization led by financial advisors, coaches, and business leaders committed to taking a holistic approach to advising. To learn more about our organization and upcoming training opportunities for financial professionals, visit ClarityToProsperity.com. At the time of delivery and any subsequent publishing, information was deemed reliable but is subject to change by the time of listening or viewing. The contents of this piece include the opinions and projections of C2P Enterprises, are subject to change, and are for informational purposes only. The information provided in this presentation is not intended to be individual investment, tax or legal advice.